so much JWST news. A planet survives after being eaten by a red giant. Euclid launches and gravitationally lensing gravitational waves. All this and more in this week's Space Bites. All right, buckle up. We've got a lot of JWST news to get through today. There's been a ton of new stuff that's come out over the last week. So first up, I want to talk about the idea of the cosmic web. And this is the large scale structure of the universe at the largest scales. Like when you look out and zoom out and out and out from the universe, the final structure that you're going to see is these walls and threads and chains of galaxy clusters that are clumped together. And then those are surrounded by these gigantic voids that have opened up in between these groups of galaxy clusters. And these are just the result of gravity pulling matter together and also the expansion of the universe opening up these voids. And over time, like if you just looked forward into the universe, billions and billions of years from now, the voids will be bigger, the clumps will be clumpier. And that is sort of like the final shape that you're going to see the universe take. And so if you rewind the clock back and you look back into time, then you will see the voids getting smaller, you will see what are now like these this cosmic web become more and more diffuse as the galaxies are, you know, they're on their way to being pulled together. And the question is like, when can you first see this structure? Because it's formed because there were over densities in the cosmic microwave background radiation. You had parts that were more dense, parts that were less dense. And then over time, as gravity pulled material together, as the expansion continued, you got more and more of this structure starting to form. Well, astronomers have used JWST to look back in time right close to the beginning of the universe, just 830 million years after the Big Bang, and they saw the first beginnings of the cosmic web starting to form. Now, it's not much. You've got sort of on one end this quasar that is anchoring pieces of the cosmic web. And then you've got about a dozen galaxies that are lining up getting pulled into this sort of structure. And this is the kind of thing that billions of years later would be the heart of a massive galaxy cluster with more and more galaxies forming together and more of these lining up. But it's amazing that these structures are already being resolved by JWST. And this is what you would expect to see. Like we know that there are these over densities in the cosmic microwave background and we see the cosmic web today. And you would assume that there would just be these building blocks over time as this larger structure came together. Supernova are pumping out dust. We know that galaxies have a surprising amount of dust in them. In fact, you are living on that dust right now, and that's planet Earth. The planet is the result of previous generations of stars that lived and died and poured out heavier and heavier elements. They turned into molecules, they collected together, and they formed the nuggets of planets and other objects in the universe. You know, as Carl Sagan says, you know, we're made of stardust. But where does all this dust come from? I mean, there's lots of candidates. You've got quasars, supermassive black holes that are actively feeding and have just intense conditions around them. You've got stars that are just like our sun that puff out their outer layers as they die supernova colliding neutron stars like what is the source and and chances are it's it's most of those things that i just mentioned but definitely it is supernova contributing a tremendous amount of this dust into the universe so once again jwst was used to observe two supernova that went off in a galaxy that's about 22 million light years away 
and it was able to measure the amount of dust that was ejected by the supernova and found that it's about 5,000 Earth's worth of these heavier materials. And so when you think back to the early universe at the time of the cosmic noon, when the most star formation was going on, the most stars were living and dying, and they were popping off as supernova at an amazing rate, this was contributing a large amount of the dust to these early galaxies. Webb sees the most distant quasar so far. Last week, we talked about how JWST has seen a couple of supermassive black holes just about 800 million years after the Big Bang, one of which had already ballooned up to more than a billion times the mass of the sun. But what about earlier than that? Well, now astronomers say they've found a quasar, so we actively feeding supermassive black hole at only 570 million years after the Big Bang. Now, it's not a very heavy quasar. It has merely 9 million times the mass of the sun. And when you compare the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, right, 4.1 million times the mass of the sun, so it's double the mass of the Milky Way's black hole. And that is nothing compared to the size that are potentially out there with billions and billions of times the mass of the sun. It's called Sears 1019. And this is part of a new survey that was done that found a bunch more of these quasars and supermassive black holes early on in the universe. And I love this. This is just one of those records that you know is going to be broken. And so just stay tuned. I'm sure when we get to the next round of JWST observations, that record will be broken. They get broken again. We got like 25 years of this. Speaking of the next round of JWST observations, we got the announcement that cycle two has been worked out and put into the schedule for JWST. Now the first year of observations of JWST is about to wrap up. And the time was allocated by this group called the Space Telescope Science Institute. They're the same people that allocate the time for the Hubble Space Telescope. And what they do is they just take in an open call for observations from the astronomical community. And then they sit down and figure out which of the ideas are best, which are the highest priorities to use JWST's observing time over the course of the year. And then they allocate the time to figure out which things are close to each other. So you can minimize the movement in between, as well as, you know, we talked about how they're trying to protect the observatory from micrometeorites. So there's certain directions they have to point. There's times of year when certain objects can be seen, which other ones can't. So there's like a lot of moving parts to put together this schedule. They've got about 5,000 hours of prime observing time. And then they've got about another 1,200 hours of parallel time in the general observer program. And so with cycle two, they have produced the schedule for what JWST is going to be observing over the next year. And it's interesting, right? Because we're now nearing the end of the first year. And as that one year deadline accumulates, you're going to see the stuff that was done as part of the proprietary observations now be released into the public. And so all the astronomers are going to be able to start working through this material that was observed one year ago. But now the next year's observations are have been queued up. So I just want to give you a couple of, of highlights like there's hundreds of them in here, you know, some are just a dozen hours of observing time, some are 600 hours of observing time. So there's a lot going on. A couple of themes that we see is observations of hot planets. So you've got observations of hot Jupiters that are 
orbiting really close to their parent star, as well as irradiated rocky planets that are orbiting around red dwarf stars, but again, too close. And like, obviously, one of the big questions is how do you get these giant planets getting so close to their stars? How did they migrate? Why don't we have them here in the solar system? There's 615 hours, they're going to be going to study the distance and composition of 60,000 individual galaxies. And obviously, these are the kinds of surveys that you do to try and figure out the large scale structure of the universe, try to answer questions about dark energy, dark matter. And so you can feed those data in with the kinds of observations that Vera Rubin's going to make that Nancy Grace Roman is going to make that Euclid is going to make. And so you've got this much better map of the universe, both at the largest scales across huge swaths of the universe, but also really detailed surveys of merely 60,000 galaxies like what JWST is going to do. There's going to be more observations here in the solar system. There's going to be a few dozen hours planned to observe the atmosphere of Jupiter. And this, you know, we got some initial pictures of Jupiter, but because JWST is an infrared instrument, this is the perfect kind of machine to be able to look through and try and sort of unravel the layers of Jupiter's atmosphere and give us a sense of how you get these amazing weather patterns on the surface of the planet. So I'm just giving you a highlight. I'm sure if I like went through every week, I would find stuff that I find fascinating and I have questions about, but we will watch together as the results unfold. Euclid launches. Last week, we talked about the European Space Agency's Euclid mission was about to launch and how it's going to work with other telescopes to build this amazing map of the universe. Well, it launched. It blasted off on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket and successfully deployed into low Earth orbit. And now it's got about two weeks of being checked out. It's got to deploy its sun shield, its various instruments. It's got to pass a bunch of tests. And then it's going to make an insertion flight to the L2 Lagrange point, where it will join JWST and Gaia to be able to observe the universe from this position that is far away from the Earth, that it's able to block the light of the sun, the moon, and the Earth from its observations, and be able to start mapping out the universe. And remember, it's equipped with two instruments, right? One which will allow it to measure the shape of galaxies, see their spirals, but also see how they're being distorted by gravity. And then it will be able to measure the spectra, be able to determine what those galaxies are made out of and try and help measure their distance, how fast they're moving away from us, and to be able to use those two measurements to be able to figure out how much of an influence dark matter and dark energy are having on these galaxies. Every week, we do a vote here on our channel. So you can tell us which of the stories was most exciting to you. And last week, the winning vote was for the gravitational wave background measurement, which is you know, that's not surprising. I mean, I think a lot of people were anticipating this news was going to come out. It came out. It's exciting. Uh, so hopefully we'll find out the repercussions of this over the coming years. So we'll post a new vote soon to the community tab on YouTube where you can see the next vote for this week's stories. Now you have to be subscribed to the channel, I think, to be able to get these posts come through. So if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Using gravitational waves to find dark matter. So last week, we talked about how astronomers have used pulsars to detect the background gravitational wave signature of the universe. 
But could we use gravitational waves to detect dark matter? In theory, I mean, if dark matter is actually matter and not just some kind of modified gravity, then when matter is moving through the universe, you would expect it to release some kind of gravitational wave. But also, as gravitational waves push through dark matter, they're going to be influenced and affected and potentially gravitationally lensed by that dark matter. So astronomers have proposed that the next generation of gravitational wave instruments could be able to detect dark matter. It's a very specific type of dark matter they're looking for called ultra heavy dark matter. So this is like well onto the dark matter is a particle side of the spectrum and a very heavy particle. So two possible instruments, you've got the Einstein telescope, which will have 10 kilometer long arms. And then there's the cosmic explorer, which would have 40 kilometer long arms. And so probably both of those instruments will come online in the 2030s. And one of the things that they could do is help pin down dark matter. And sometimes like if you can't figure out what something is, then at least you can figure out what it isn't. And so there's a certain range of observations that if dark matter doesn't show up within those observations, then you could say, okay, we can rule out this ultra heavy dark matter particle. And that leaves openings for other things like axions or primordial black holes. And if you want to learn more about what dark matter might not be, uh, you can hear this interview that I've done with Dr. Keir Rogers, we talked about axions as well as like how you can constrain the properties of dark matter, at least to figure out what it isn't. So check out this interview. Gravitationally lensed gravitational waves. One of the questions that I get a lot on the channel is whether gravitational waves could be gravitationally lensed. And think about how we get these gravitational lenses coming from light. Light is passing near gigantic gravity wells like galaxy clusters, things like that. And the path that the light takes is warped. And it's warped in such a way that astronomers can then measure the mass of the object that is warping the light. And in certain instances, you get the situation where you've got some object that is behind a gravitational lens, and the light takes multiple pathways around the object. And so you can get, say, the same supernova be seen three or four times at different times. Like you see the supernova go off once, and then you wait a couple of months, and you see it go off again, and then again, and then again, because the light is taking this longer pathway. So would this work with gravitational waves? And the answer is yes. And in fact, it'll work better because one of the problems with gravitational lenses for light is that the light interacts with the matter of the gravitational lens. And so you're going to get it be scattered, you're going to get it be blocked, absorbed. And so you've got this distortion of the light that is really hard to kind of separate from the gravitational lens effect. So when you've got this gravitational wave that's passing through the gravitational lens, they're not going to be absorbed, they're not going to be reflected, not going to be scattered, they're just going to only be affected lens by the gravity of the lens. Now we don't have a lot of gravitational wave observations so far, like it's in the dozens, but with the current observing run, as well as the next generation detectors, we're going to move into the hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of gravitational wave detections. And so if the number of those is similar to the number of normal gravitational lenses, we should see about 1% of these objects through a gravitational lens. That gives us a really amazing way to measure the expansion of the universe. Because what you get is you get this gravitational 
wave. Man, it's hard to keep this all straight. You have this gravitational wave that is passing the gravitational lens, and it's going to take different pathways around the lens. And so you're going to see multiple events of the black holes colliding with each other. You know the energy of the collision. You know the time that it took to get to us. It gives us this way to measure the expansion rate of the universe with more precision than almost any other method that we have today. And so we could get to this place where we are detecting all of these gravitationally lens, gravitational waves, and they are giving us this precise way to measure the expansion rate of the universe and help us resolve the Hubble tension, the crisis in cosmology. It's a pretty great idea. We just need more observations and more gravitational wave detectors. Now, you probably know that we've reached the summer hiatus point of our channel, but what that really means is that we're not doing any of the live shows right now until September. So Astronomy Cast, as well as the, the question show that I do every week, but we have an enormous number of question shows in the can that you can come and check out. We've got a playlist there. And in fact, we've got a bunch of surprise fun planned over the course of the summer. So while we won't necessarily be doing the live shows, there's going to be a lot of other really interesting stuff coming online over the course of our summer hiatus. So stay tuned for that. A planet survived being eaten by a star. Astronomers found a planet orbiting around a star that has left the red giant phase of its evolution. So it was a mean sequence star, it then expanded up as a red giant, and now it's on the other side of that where it's gotten significantly smaller. The planet is orbiting about half the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And here's the mystery. When the star was at the red giant phase of its evolution, it should have been about one and a half times the orbit from the Earth to the Sun. So three times farther than the current orbit of this planet. So as the star was expanding up as a red giant, it engulfed the planet. And then as it finished the red giant phase and got smaller again, it revealed the planet. Like the expectation is, is that when this happens, the planet gets destroyed or the planet has friction as it's orbiting around inside the star and it eventually just spirals inward and crashes into the core of the star. But apparently not. And so like, does this mean like in the far, far future when our sun expands as a red giant and consumes the orbits of Mercury and Venus and maybe Earth, that our planet will survive going through this red giant phase? Let's hope so. If the entire surface of your planet is superheated and essentially turned into molten rock down to several kilometers, is that, did you survive? Hmm. Ingenuity went silent for 63 days. Now, a few episodes ago, we talked about how the Ingenuity helicopter went offline for a couple of days, and NASA was very concerned, and after repeated tries, they were able to regain contact with the helicopter. Well, turns out they've been out of contact with the helicopter for two months. What happened was, back in April, the helicopter went on its 52nd mission to explore around the area that the Perseverance rover is at on Mars. We're at the point now where NASA is using Ingenuity as a scout, moving ahead of where Perseverance is to scout out all the terrain so that the astronomers back on Earth can look through all the data and decide where they want Perseverance to go next. So as it completed its flight, it landed on the ground and it happened to be on the far side of a hill and it wasn't able to make 
contact with Perseverance. So Perseverance had some additional work to do in the area that it was at. And finally, after 63 days, it crested the hill, made contact again with Ingenuity, was able to restore communications, and then they're back in operation. But clearly, you got to be careful about where you park your rover and where you park your helicopter so the two can talk to each other. Finally, a donut on Mars. One cool picture that came from the Perseverance rover is this donut-shaped rock on the surface of Mars. And we get rocks like this here on Earth all the time. It happens because you've got like one rock with a other kind of rock inside of it. The erosion from wind or water wears away the rock and the rock can kind of tumble around inside the bigger rock and sort of sandpaper out a bigger and bigger hole until it eventually falls through. And so that's one explanation, but it's a little weird because there is no water on Mars. And so it would have had to have been wind based and would have had to have acted for a very long time. And yet the rock wouldn't have been covered by dust. The other possibility is that this is a meteorite. And we've seen meteorites on the surface of Mars several times. It kind of looks like this. Um, sort of sitting out in the middle of, of nowhere, and it looks like it has some other fragments around it. And as a meteorite is passing through the atmosphere of Mars, it gets superheated, it kind of turns into a bit of a liquid, and you can get strange shapes that actually make it through the atmosphere and land on the surface. So more investigation is needed. It'd be nice to see some close-up analysis of this rock to figure out what it is. Is it a donut-shaped rock that was created that way over billions of years, or did it fall from space? Space donuts. Mm. All right, those are all the news stories that we had today. Of course, we will have links in the show notes down below so you can follow the rabbit hole as far as you want to go. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Gilton, and Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us. All right, that was all the news that we had today. We'll see you next week.